Matt Kibbe here, your host at Kibbe on Liberty. The building behind me is where the Mont Pelerin Society meeting is being held. This, of course, is a famous gathering of mostly Austrian economists founded by Frederick Hayek. It is also the place where in 1944, the so-called Bretton Woods Agreement was hatched up by the infamous John Maynard Keynes and a guy named Harry Dexter White, who was a treasury official under FDR, later discovered to be a Soviet spy. So you can imagine how this central plan to control our currency turned out in the long run. It was the death knell to the gold standard and, and it has created all sorts of chaos ever since. I'm gonna be talking to some of the brightest brains here not just about monetary policy, not just about the Bretton Woods Agreement, but where Liberty was then, where it is today, and how we move forward. Check it out. Deirdre, hello. Hello, how are you, Matt? Nice to see you. Funny that we meet each other in uh, the, the mountains of New Hampshire. Well, the mountains of New Hampshire, where they made up the IMF and the uh, World Bank, and which makes, which I find creepy. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm going to have, uh, so I'm, I'm doing a series um, around Mont Pelerin because yeah, yeah. there's all these big, beautiful brains here. Yeah. And I want to um, get them to, to speak to my audience, but uh, so Larry White will be on and, and he's going sure. to explain Bretton Woods to me like sure. I'm an idiot because yeah, yeah, yeah. because it's insanely complicated. Well most of us are. I didn't know that Keynes was mainly Keynes, John Maynard Keynes was mainly about um, the World Bank. It wasn't called that then. And that uh, White was mainly about the IMF, which yeah. is sort of very strange allocation of responsibilities. Yeah. Um, but you spoke this morning. I did about the future of liberalism with some of some of our colleagues on that panel, yeah. and I, I thought this would be a great opportunity to continue a conversation that we had the last time yeah. you joined me in Washington D.C. And I definitely want to want to dig into the, your latest research project. Sure, Christian libertarianism. Indeed, that's and, what it is. But but I, I think I think some of the, your comments this morning is a nice frame. To, to think about all this stuff, um, and and we should define the word liberalism first, because um, yeah. the question this morning was, um, what is the future of liberalism? Yeah, and a lot of Americans would hear that and think you mean leftism. No, I don't. But it's the opposite. It's the opposite. It's the it's the early nineteenth century um, followers of of the blessed Adam Smith. I always cross myself when I mention Smith, uh, like. Um, Henry David Thoreau and John Stuart Mill and so forth. There's that's the that's the the height, sort of intellectually of liberalism, and then almost immediately in England, they start talking about the new liberalism, which in the United States emerged as progressivism, and eventually FDR and the and the New Deal. And, and the modern, for the last hundred years in the United States, the word, the word, the word liberal, has meant a person who is thinks of herself as being tolerant about various personal behaviors, but wants a big state to enforce them. Yes. <laughs> 
seemingly a contradiction. It's a contradiction to this early 19th century version, which I uh, admire and, and try to uh, practice, which is simply what I call equality of permission, that if you're a, you're a woman, you're, you're allowed to become an airline pilot. If you're a, if you're a human being, you're allowed to vote. Uh, all sorts of um, uh, privileges, you might call them, and uh, from a authoritarian point of view, they're privileges. Yeah. But from my point of view, they're what we should all be doing. Yeah, it's it, the opposite, and you talked quite a bit about this this morning, the opposite of equality of outcomes. That's right, e- e- equality of outcomes is the, is the socialist um, promise, and it works just fine in a family or a small group of friends. If I bring a pizza to a party and uh, don't divide it equally, you know, I'm a jerk. Yeah. So, you know, okay, and, I, and that's fine among friends or a family. And you will be judged and pay that price. You will be judged and pay that price in a small group. If, if it's a family, uh, we want, we, we do not want our family to be run on capitalist grounds. We don't send our six-year-old out to uh, earn money to pay for lunch. So it's from each according to our ability to each according to his need. And that's the socialist ideal. And you're to, you, you're to finish the race of life equally under socialism. And then there's, there, there's another variant of equality, which, which is much more popular in the West, um, equality of opportunity. But that's impossible to achieve. Some people grow up in nice, loving families, and it's good for them. And some grow up in hideous families. Some grow up in the United States. Some grow up in South Sudan. And there's no way of equalizing the starting line of the race. But what equality permission does, this liberal idea, is let you join the race. So you aren't forbidden to become an electrician in the state of of Michigan because you don't have, as I do, a grandfather, an uncle, and a cousin who were all union electricians in Michigan. I'm the only person here who could become an apprentice electrician in in Michigan, and if this intellectual scholarly stuff doesn't work out, I'm going to go become an electrician in Michigan. It's still a fallback strategy It's still a fallback. I'm I'm 81, but... You know, I still got. I think I can still learn something about wiring. Yeah, <laughs> and you've written three fantastic volumes on this this subject of of the the evolution of yeah. uh, the the liberal revolution. Yeah, putting words in your mouth that no, that allowed for oh, it, it, everybody. It, it was a liberal revolution. The idea was was born really in the 18th century. Because in a traditional agricultural society, hierarchy, <clears throat> I'm the lord, you're the peasant, is what you, you might say naturalized. It's you're just born to be a peasant. I'm born to be the, the lord, too bad for you, and we can't change it. Whereas in the 18th century, this idea, um, uh, for various reasons, uh, came about, came to the mind of advanced intellectuals in Holland first, and then in England and Scotland, and then what became the United States. And then it spread to the world. Yeah. 
slowly, slowly. And 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 you're telling that it's relevant very much to the argument we're having in the United States today. Somehow liberalism was supplanted by by a sense of nationalism. Yeah, it was. There 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 are three big ideas in the last three centuries. The first one to happen to become uh, start to be developed is liberalism. And then in the, in the early 19th century, nationalism uh, in association with the romantic, the romantic movement. And then in the middle of the 19th century, more romanticism sometimes turned on its head of socialism. And if you like nationalism and socialism, maybe you like German national socialism in the 1930s. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's... Uh... It's a trap. Don't take it. Don't take it. It's a really bad idea. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm thinking about this in the context of, of um, so many um, people in the United States have never heard of the liberal tradition, and they, yeah. they would sort of recoil from that word. But yeah. that's which is why I agree with Hayek when he criticizes the word libertarian, but yeah, I still yeah. use it. Yeah. because it's easier than having to explain what kind of liberalism I'm advocating. You know, I, I'm, I'm with Hayek on this, but it's hopeless. Yeah. The, the word in Latin America means um, policies in favor of the rich enforced by the army. Yeah. In the United States, it means social democracy. It means an enormous welfare state and coercions on the poor. There's something in the water of the Western Hemisphere that makes this word go crazy. Whereas in um, uh, Germany or France now, everyone knows what it means in my terms, liberal. Yeah. It means a society of uh, freed people yeah. and adults. You could call it adultism, yeah. in fact. Yeah. which I think would charm the teenagers. At Kibbe on Liberty, freedom is a lifestyle 24-7, something you live and breathe and wear every day. If that describes you, you need the very best Liberty swag in the market today, just like this shirt I happen to be wearing. Go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and check out our exciting merch. You too can love Liberty and look cool. Yeah, you said that, uh, you know, the and I loved, I hadn't really thought about this. Um, and we spent so much time trying to connect with young people. Yeah, yeah. Um, what does a teenager want? He wants, he or she wants to become an adult. That's right. But, but, would... but by the way, I have some advice. Don't stop, don't talk about the responsibilities. <laughs> That's kind of a conservative line. That's a buzzkill, yeah. No, it's a buzzkill. And the kid, you say to the kid, you should grow up, take responsibility. And the kid says, geez, what a terrible idea. Yeah. I, I want to go drinking. Yeah. <laughs> So, so, so freedom to freedom. choose your own way. Although, you know, the word freedom has a problem in English because it's gotten to mean having a lot of stuff, and that's not what it means. What, once it meant what, it, what the, the Latin origin word, namely, 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 I always stutter on it, my favorite word, and I stutter on it, liberty. Um, means now and has always meant what freedom once meant, which means not being a slave. Yeah. Period. That's all it meant. Being a free person mean that you had rights in the king's court that you didn't have if you were a serf. Yeah. 
But in the last hundred years or so, it's come to, especially by economists like Amartya Sen, it's come to mean having enough stuff to function in the society. I think that's a result of not of, of giving equality of permission, but I don't think it should be defined as the same thing. Yeah. So um, I'm also going to be speaking with Daniel Hannon about national conservatism. Yeah, and, that's a real and his thing. it's it's um, it's kind of a combination of, of really really bad ideas. Um, but so many so many people watching this show would would call themselves conservatives, yeah. but they would also agree with everything you've said so far yeah, that's right. about liberalism, and so I, I would I would consider the the conservative label in the U.S. Uh, very recently meant limited government, yeah. rule of law, yeah. um, free trade, liberty. Free trade, free international trade, and start and, a business when and, you want to, and all that stuff. Yeah, um, but the national conservatives, as far as I can tell, want to. They're basically saying, "Hold my beer. You can trust us with unlimited yeah. power of government." Yeah, that's right. So that we can impose our values on the population. That's the trouble. The the your 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 conservative people who are hearing this. They're, they're not conservatives in the sense that the national conservatives are and some other characters of various kinds in that they, in wanting to use the power of the state to crush other people, I think a kind of hysteria, a worry about socialism is what motivates a lot of my uh, conservative friends to tip over into things like national conservatism or some other not very nice um, way of thinking about your fellow citizens. But whereas the old style conservatism of uh, Ronald Reagan and so forth respected people yeah. in a very, very libertarian way. And respected. Um non-governmental institutions Very as, much so. as the foundation, Very starting so. with the family. The family, the church, the, although Ronald Reagan himself was not much of a churchman, I must say, but um, uh, the, the club, <laughs> the, and indeed the, the, indeed the corporation. Yeah. Because, you know, uh, though, though the left doesn't believe it, um, corporations and ordinary or ordinary single owner um, uh, 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 business firm is is an ethical community. If it's not, it doesn't work very well, and becomes a, you know actually doesn't work very well economically, and certainly doesn't work very well spiritually. Yeah. If you don't care about your employees, or your customers, or your or your creditors, <laughs> or your Whoever, as a person in business, I don't think you're you're going to do very well, and you're going to corrupt yourself. If you think that greed is good, you're barking up the wrong tree, dear. So when you say the phrase Christian libertarianism, yeah, I immediately think of Adam Smith and the theory of moral sentiments. I do too. Is that 
is that the like where did you, where did you mash these two things up? Well, I, I know you didn't do it, but how do you but, find but these I, things? I didn't do it. Um, one, I, I only read the theory of moral sentiments late in life, and I should have read it in graduate school, and my life would have been very different <laughs> if I had. But I'm I became a Christian in 1998. Uh, before that, I was kind of an academic agnostic. I was never an atheist, because I think being firmly an atheist is to adopt an epistemology that doesn't have any grounding. I mean, so you, you, you're sure there's no God, are you, dear? Well, you know, how, how can you do it's that? It's almost a statement of faith. It's a statement. Of course it's a statement of faith, and it's self-contradictory to say, I'm against faith. I have a faith that I'm against faith. Yeah. But in 1998, I became an Episcopalian. We call ourselves the Frozen Chosen, the uh, um, uh, Catholic Light. Uh, in fact, I know. That's what Terry's priest called yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I, I was raised Episcopalian. There you are. Then you understand it. I was, I, I've always had, since 1998, I've been in what we call low church, Episcopalian. Uh, congregations, and that's been fine, and in fact, fact, wonderful. But now, in the last, since January, I've lived in Washington, D.C., and virtually across the street from me is a high church Episcopalian. They call themselves Anglo-Catholics, and we we say smells and bells, that is, incense and bells when the host is raised. So it's been fun in in both cases, but in any case, so so more like more ritual. Yeah, yeah. yeah we that's we, right. we didn't that's do right. that. That's right. I know. That's that's what I mainly, yeah, so to speak, was raised in. But I was, what was I? I was fifty five when I <laughs> converted or became a Christian. But I'm I just finished a book that I'm peddling, trying to get published, which says that look, free will. The grant of liberty of the will by God um, is uh, is to be used, and it's to be used for ethical purposes. But that doesn't necessarily mean following the Sermon on the Mount. It means engaging in a commercial society in which you help other people by making goods and services for them which you sell. So there's no necessary conflict, although in Christianity people worry about it a lot, not so much in the in um, Islam or in Judaism, but there's a conflict, there's no conflict, I think, between a market society and a Christian society. I mean, in a way, the the Christian theologians and pastors and so forth have been struggling with this issue ever since St. Paul. And um, St. Paul himself said, he who does not work should not eat. <laughs> so he was, a, he was a tough guy on this, you gotta do your job stuff. So I, I, it's mainly in the last hundred years that mainline Protestants, as we call them, um, have turned against the market. And I want to reverse that trend. 
Why? Well, because I think it's true. No, no, not why do you want to reverse it, but why did that happen? Because of the rise of socialist thinking, the rise of statism. In 1910, places like France, the United States, Britain, Germany, Italy, had at all levels of government only about 10% of GDP income, what we do, what we make, going through the government. Now it's from 40 to 55, it's 55% in France, it's about 40% in the United States, it's really big. And uh, that development, I'm not saying, well, I don't want to get tangled up in this, it's simply that modern statism um, is not liberal and is getting more and more popular. Thank you for joining me today on Kibbe on Liberty and for being part of our fiercely independent audience. Every week, my organization, Free the People, partners with Blaze TV to bring you this show. My guests bring smart perspectives on everything from current events to timeless philosophical debates. If you like what you hear, go to freethepeople.org KOL and support Kibbe on Liberty so we can continue to produce these honest conversations with interesting people. Now, let's get back to it. It's, uh, it's fascinating to me because you have, I mean, most immediately in my mind, you have something like liberation theology. Yeah, that's right. And it, it was of a, uh, certainly uh, of a socialist, yeah. you. And, and indeed, the, the current pope, who I admire very much in some ways, um, nonetheless was raised in Argentina, and it infected him. He had no chance. He had no chance. He yeah. was doomed. But the, like obviously, the the, the advocates, um, including the Pope, would would kind of draw um, socialist lessons from um, the New Testament in particular. They would for sure. The the Sermon on the Mount becomes their central text, and I, I like the sermon. Like is kind of a it's kind of a stupid word to use in this context, but I, I approve of the Sermon on the Mount. But I also approve of many of the other things that that my Lord and Savior is said to have said. There's a lot of said to have said in in the uh, even in the synoptic uh, Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, um, and there. Are, it's unclear how much of this really came out of the mouth of Jesus, but it is clear that. There are contradictory messages in the Jesus movement. There are, he who does not work should not eat. And there's also what St. Paul was railing against when he said that, which is, well, the, the second coming of Christ is pretty soon. Why work? <laughs> Why bother with markets or anything? Yeah. Uh, so there, there are, as I said, in Christianity especially, of the three Abrahamic faiths, this, this tension is very great. And then it kind of got official, officially socialist in the last hundred years. And that wasn't just in the Christian community. It's, no, it's it, also was in, it was in the atheist community yeah. and lots of other communities. The scientism of, of, of men knowing enough 
perhaps, perhaps knowing everything and, and sort of reorganizing that's it for right, us. That's right. That's right. There, the um, scientism, which is which is not the same thing as science, became immensely popular in the late nineteenth century. And there are many, many figures. I mean, look. Um, uh, uh, genetic engineering was very popular circa 1910. Most intellectuals in Europe and the United States and elsewhere believed it was a good idea to sterilize a bunch of people. Um, and that was scientism working. The irrational worship of the kind of social engineering idea that, well, we can make a steam engine better by adding a separate condenser. We should be able to do the same thing in society. Yeah. And I, as you said, I know how. I'm very smart, you know. Yeah. And I have a degree in science, which you don't have. So I'm going to tell you how to run your life. This was, uh, I, I went down the rabbit hole of rereading Hayek's The Counter-Revolution of Science. And before Marx made socialism such a violent ideology, yeah. it was it was just scientism. Yeah, it yeah. Was, it was Saint Simon saying Saint Simon. Let's let's and he wanted to it's funny, it's ironic perhaps that he wanted to create a temple to Sir Isaac Newton. <laughs> and he wanted to fill the temple with scientists and the scientists were going to tell yeah, us yeah, yeah. how to live our lives. Um, so Newton's it, an interesting character. He was a he was a Unitarian. That is, he didn't believe in the in the divinity of Christ, which was a capital offense in his time. So yeah. he had to keep it secret. So there's a raging debate um, that I'm not that fluent on, but I've heard. I think I've heard you say it, but certainly Vernon Smith yeah. argues that Adam Smith was a Christian. Yes, there's a I, debate I, about this. I say so. I just wrote a little piece yeah. saying that. So, so how do you know? Well, interestingly, I, was, I just learned the other day that he was an Episcopalian, Scottish Episcopalian, not English, Epis, not Anglican, but Scottish Episcopalian. And um, indeed, we Episcopalians got the, um, the apostolic succession from the, Engli from the Scottish Episcopalians, not from the Anglicans. Who wouldn't have any? The English Anglicans wouldn't have anything to do with us yeah. because we were in rebellion against the uh, uh, against the crown. But um, so it, it's uh, a uh, I've sort of lost track of the question. What was it? Uh, uh, Adam Smith. Oh yeah. And his Christianity. Yeah, he, he his dear friend David Hume was a pronounced and open atheist. Um, although even David Hume admitted that Christianity could be a ameliorating force in the world, that it would could support good ethics, healthy for the society. Adam Smith certainly believed that. And there, there are quite a few much more deep and profound students of Smith than I am who would agree with this? And then there are others, as you pointed out, who said, no, no, he's not. He's agnostic like his, uh, at least agnostic, yeah. if not an atheist like Jung. But, you know, in, in the Scotland of the 18th century, he was surrounded by theologians. They were his friends, um, Presbyterian, and I gather Anglican too. 
and uh, in a way, in his other book, everyone's heard about the, the, the Wealth of Nations, but his other, in, in a way, more profound book is The Theory of Moral Sentiments, 1759 instead of 1776. And in that, you can see him building the, an account of an ethical adult society um, without a lot of God talk. But then he talks about, there's more God talk than you might think in that book. Yeah. Um, but so it, it's controversial slightly, but he's, I think he was a man of faith. Yeah. It, I mean, in some ways, I mean, it matters, but it may not matter ultimately to the, when you think about the, the Scottish Enlightenment philosophers, right. they're swimming right. in this current. Exactly. And, and they're, they're not, surrounded with it. They're not, uh, how would I say, strongly atheist or something like that. I, I don't think what's often claimed on the conservative side that the United States was founded on Christianity. I don't, that's, don't think that's true. I think our founding fathers, Jefferson being a prominent example, were deists at best, saying, well, yeah, there's a God, but he doesn't, he's not a personal God. Um, and, but as you said, this is a age in which, in which most people go to church Although again, it's easy. It, the United States has gone through several great awakenings of religiosity, and one of them came well after 1776 in the early 19th century. Uh, when, when, and um, for example, it was associated with uh, abolitionists uh, abolishing slavery which was also the first great triumph of, of liberalism, the abolition of, of slavery. So, um, Americans have had a somewhat um, feverish relationship with faith, yeah. much less so than the British or even the French. So, the I tell this joke, it's not a joke, but it's sort of a joke that, um, you know, the, the second time, Vernon Smith convinced me to read The Theory of Moral Sentiments a second time. It's a wonderful book. And apparently I, I should read it a dozen times if I really want to comprehend absolutely. it. Absolutely. I've, I've taught the book in the Department of Philosophy at Erasmus University and, of course, on ethics, and I've read it at least three times. If you've made it this far into the show, it means I must be doing something right. Key Beyond Liberty is just one of the amazing products we created for the people. We tell emotionally compelling stories and produce educational videos for the Liberty Curious. Our award-winning documentaries personalize all things Liberty, independence, creativity, hard work, integrity, and perseverance. After the show, check out our work at freethepeople.org. And if you like what you see, donate to support what we do. That's freethepeople.org. Now back to the show. So Vernon was speaking, I think this was 2009, 2010, Alberto Mangardi had organized an event yeah, yeah. 
in Italy and he was speaking off the cuff about Adam Smith and the theory of moral sentiments. And it, I, was, I was sitting there saying, so what, what this 700 page book says is don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. That's right. And that, that was the origin of this, of this slogan, which surely isn't original to me. But it's, it cuts. And you it, wrote a very good, popular book yes. on the subject. And I, I sort of tried to distill my libertarianism well, down to some simple rules, if you will. And it was don't hurt people, don't take their stuff, take responsibility. Yeah. I know I'm not supposed to use the R word yeah, with that, the young that kids frightens today. teenagers. Um, work for it. That's another tough yeah, one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mind your own business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, and and the, the, the final one was fight the power. Yeah, yeah. Don't trust power. But the one that I missed that maybe's implicit in the first two rules is keep your word. Yeah. And that's a that's a key part to the theory yeah. of moral sentiments. That, yeah, it certainly is. Yeah. It certainly is. The, the Kant, his contemporary in Germany, made a whole moral theory about keeping your word. And he went too far, as, one, as Adam Smith himself, himself pointed out, that philosophers tend to do. Got hold of a principle, and you should always tell the truth, even when a murderer is trying to find your friend, you should tell the murderer the truth about where your friend is. Um, but I have a religious version of your uh, uh, formulation of this. I, I point out that um, uh, that there is a po there is a positive version of the golden rule, which Jesus articulated early in the first century. CE, namely, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But Hillel of Babylon, about 50 years before Jesus, had articulated the negative rule, which is don't do unto others as you would not as you would want them not to do to you. And if you put the two together, I claim, that's liberalism. Yeah. Uh, be loving, but be just. Those are the two sides. And love and justice are a pretty good social compact. Yeah. You may recall last time we were talking, I'm, I'm trying to come up with, um, I want to say universal human values sure. that resonate with people. And I think variations on the golden rule are sort of the, the cornerstone. I think so too. Of all of that. But if you, if you think about um, when, when you ask the government to impose these things on people, you're yeah. actually um, taking away the possibility sure. that you can find mutual respect. Exactly. That you can find peaceful cooperation. Exactly. And, and of course, love is the, is the most difficult thing to achieve because mm -hmm. it has to, be, has, has to be found freely. Yeah, that's right. Or else it's me. It's you can't pass a law. Then you go back to the matter of free will and God's gift of consciousness to us. By the way, the psychologists, the brain scientists, will admit that they have no good account of human consciousness. And so you could you could take the view that this is God God given, but in any case, um, free will. 
uh, is is you you can't be forced to love someone, but you can train yourself to not hate them, which is the Christian um, advice. Yeah, love thy neighbor. What what credit is it to you? Said said Jesus to love your friend, but it's harder and necessary to love your enemy. And I wish there was more of that in American politics right now. Yeah, there's there's none of that in American none of politics. That. Zero zilch. And this is quite annoying because pe- some people who call themselves believing Christians are very willing to say, oh, well, hate the hate the sin, not the sinner. That's a phony excuse. Yeah. You've got to love the person you n- disagree with. And and um, if if we do that, we're able to find common ground. The, the corruption, and I'm sure this has always been true, but politics today is exclusively about what you don't like about exactly. the other. Exactly. It's a hate fest. Yeah. And, and that's got to stop. We've got we to stop hating conservatives and, and MAGA people, hating uh, the media and hating this and hating that. Down that path lies fascism and communism. Yeah. So what you, you have this, this manuscript and this book and... And I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by the duality of, like, you, you can read the New Testament and somehow become a Marxist. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but these common sense values that I get out of Adam Smith um, seem 100% consistent they are. With, with Christianity. Absolutely, no question about it. And uh, not a problem. Yeah. But I'm, I want to go back to this, this, this path, this dark path that you're describing. Mm-hmm. Um, the... the to the extent that it is a cohesive philosophy, national conservatism is is almost a, a Christian nationalism. Yeah, it is. Um, almost exclusively. Well, there there there's a version of this called um, uh, integralism, which has a rather long history. It's theocracy. It's the idea that if you're a real Christian, you want the government to be enforcing it. Yeah. And that, that I find, you know, I'm I'm a liberal. Yeah. In the 18th century sense, in 19 early 19th. But is, isn't isn't sort of beating virtue into other people? Isn't that a contradiction? Well, of, I don't want to beat it. Of course, it is a contradiction. Yeah. No, I'm I'm saying that the nationalist, the Christian nationalist, the integralist, it's a complete contradiction. It's it's the and and nationalism is a contradiction of Christianity. As uh, Adam Smith said in Theory of Moral Sentiments, you should love in a perhaps a less intense way a widening circle of people, your family, your, your brother, and then a widening circle. But that doesn't mean you can cut off and say, okay, I don't care at all about those Chinese or about those Jews or the, about those queers. That's not Christianity. That's... Um, to have a margin beyond which you introduce hate instead of love as yeah. the principle, and it, that, that, although by the way, Christianity and this this gospel of love is a new element in the ancient world. 
the ancient world didn't particularly admire love, not in the kind of uh, very strong way that St. Paul and his followers, uh, 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 faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. That, that would embarrass Aristotle or Plato or even, even, even Cicero. So there, there, that is a new element in, in the West. Perhaps one of the core building blocks of, of liberalism. Yes, although... Which, uh, which came first? Well, love came first. Love it conquers all. And of course, people loved each other before Christianity. It's just elevating it to a great social principle is, yeah. is a novel idea. But of course, the, that's the trouble. Socialism, you know, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you because I love you, is a, a, a dangerous implication of love. Yeah. The smothering love of mother of her child to the point where the child doesn't become an adult, but remains a child. She can say, oh, I, 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 I love Johnny so much, but it's terribly bad for Johnny. He doesn't ever graduate from being a, a slavish child. Well, we can aspire to love, but, but I feel like right now, just a little bit of tolerance. Sure, um, just plain old tolerance. Just yeah, like, right. I don't care what you do, That's right. but you're free to do it. My grandmother, born in the 1890s, witnessed the transition from horses to automobiles. And she used to say all the time, you can do anything, but don't scare the horses, <laughs> which for a horse running society is quite appropriate. Yeah. It, and it, it, it expresses this one American value of allowing people to do what they want, don't tread on me, so forth. But unfortunately, there's also an authoritarian sort of, sort of, sort of busybody side of the American character, which says, well, you, you, can, you can do anything you want, but don't do that. Don't have a gay marriage, or don't uh, uh, eat, uh, I don't know, don't drink too much. The uh, those guys the, are the worst, by the way. The prohibitionists were, yeah. were a, an illiberal movement. Yeah, I, I, my sense is that, that the, you know, the, the progressive impulse of the time, the scientism of yeah, the time that's right. that led to eugenics was also this, like, you will be a better person if I You'll force be a you. Person. That's right. Terry and I are giving a talk tomorrow night, and, and um, I, there's this ironic, tragic, and disgusting thing that happened during Prohibition where the government actually decided in order to keep you safe and to make you a better person, I'm going to yeah. poison the bootleg alcohol yeah. that you drink and you'll probably die. Jesus, did that actually happen? It actually happened. Good God. And, I didn't and know that. It was, it was to keep people safe yeah, and okay. virtuous. Yeah, I'm, well, you know, it's sort of like uh, in the Spanish Inquisition, they would... Uh, uh, torture Jews and Muslims till they converted, having been stretched and yeah. stabbed and so forth. So they, they said, oh yeah, yeah, Jesus is my savior. And then they would be executed because now they're set for 
salvation. Yeah. <laughs> so it's good for them. They end up in heaven. Hey, cool. Excellent. If we could avoid this next time, it would be a good thing. <laughs> it really would. <laughs> Thank you so much. Is, you. is there anything that you shamelessly want to flack? Um, I, I mentioned the bourgeois virtues. Um, well, I have lots of books these days. I've written 25 books, and, in, and recently I've written these books, all of which, by the way, are available on tape at, uh, what's it called, uh, Audible. Yeah. Um, read by these brilliant actors who read them much better than I could. So I urge you, if you're taking long drives a lot, get your audible copy of, say, one book I wrote after the trilogy was Why, Liberal Why Liberalism Works. And I've got a popular book with uh, um, Art Carden called Leave Me Alone and I'll Make You Rich. You know, you can kind of tell it's kind of, it's trying to do as good a job as you did yeah. in your popular book. And um, I keep, keep, keep pounding away at it. I've, I'm an economic historian and economist, um, but in the last 10 years I've gotten focused on the crisis of liberalism and how the authoritarians you know, Xi Jinping and that gang, how they actually understand liberalism a lot better than a lot of our friends do. They know that you go after the journalists, then you go after the professors, then you go after the courts. They know how to the, suppress the artists. a free society. Yeah. They're really good at it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a sad way to end this, but... Uh, <laughs> I know it is, but we can fight against it, not yes. fight. I don't want to say fight, persuade, We can sweet talk. I always say um, I, I don't even want to... I never want to tell someone else what to think. I don't want to tell them that I have it figured out, but I'd, yeah, yeah. I'd love to turn them on to the way that I think about things. Sure. And hopefully we did that today. Sweet talk. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, dear. Thanks for watching. If you liked the conversation, make sure to like the video, subscribe, and also ring the bell for notifications. And if you want to know more about Free the People, go to freethepeople.org.